it is hard to see when you're in the middle of your largesse, when you live with privilege and you have enough food and don't have to worry about transportation. But even within a healthcare system, what some CEOs and boards are learning is they don't have to go very far beyond their own walls. They have employees. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was Karen DeSalvo, the public health leader who sat down with me in San Francisco last week. Karen was a top HHS official in the Obama administration. She simultaneously ran the Office of National Coordinator for Health IT and served as the Assistant Secretary for Health. Karen had appeared on an early episode of Pulse Check, where she talked about that work and her life story. You can find a link to that episode in the show notes. And we caught up at the JPM Healthcare Conference so I could hear what Karen's been up to in the year since leaving HHS. You'll hear that interview in a moment. And then stay tuned to the end of Pulse Check for a quick roundup from me on some of the news of the week. Just a reminder, you can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. You can find me at ddiamondapolitico.com or at ddiamond on Twitter. And now, here's Karen DeSalvo. And for listener background, we'd just spent five minutes pushing through a crowd of sniffling people, walking through a rainstorm. So personal health was top of mind, at least for me, as you'll hear. You're a public health expert. There are thousands of people descending upon San Francisco in the middle of flu season. There's rain, there's crowds. What is your life hack to staying safe amid uh, amid the J.P. Morgan conference? Oh, well, and California's having a significant outbreak. So it's it's also um, an opportunity to carry all across the country um, flu virus. My personal advice to people, get a flu shot. Practice um, your own good uh, health hygiene. Sleep, eat healthy, exercise, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. And if you sneeze or cough, do it in the crook of your elbow, not on your hand. I feel like your former boss, uh, HHS Secretary Sebelius, demonstrated famously how to cough and sneeze with the crook. Uh-huh. It's something a lot more people need to do and learn. In fact, uh, Sesame Street was helpful with that uh, as well. It's It should just become a natural instinct. But that's the biggest thing is this, the handshaking. I tell you, in um, this conference, though, maybe not as bad as we had in Louisiana, where everybody's big into uh, cheek kisses. So when you greet somebody in Louisiana, you give them a little kiss on the cheek. When I first became health commissioner, and there was a lot of that, I was in public meetings all the time. I got so sick in the beginning until I learned to practice a little more social distancing. And a, and a few more fist bumps, I'm guessing. I also <laughs> brought, <laughs> we, we, we were talking on the, on the way up, I brought all of these masks for the plane that I was wearing. I still have a box of them if you want me to spot you one for this no, conference. No, no, no. I'm, I'm good. I have my flu shot. I'm feeling strong. You were Assistant Secretary of Health for the Obama administration. You were one of the leaders to turn the lights out at HHS. It's been a year. It's been more than that since you were on this podcast. Catch the listeners up. What is Karen DeSalvo up to? Well, um, I left the last moment that they would allow us to be in the building. It was very hard to let go of the opportunity to serve people and to serve people with that team. I'll tell you, we were working as long as we could. I packed up. Um, we drove back to New Orleans, which is where my husband had been, and I settled myself back in in my home community. I took a little time to kind of think about what had occurred and where I wanted to apply myself next. It's been a really busy time since especially 2005, since Katrina happened. I have been running at full tilt. 
And I had this experience in Washington that I think is pretty unique, where I did two jobs for about two years, one um, very broad and public health focused, and one very technology, entrepreneurial kind of environment. And I loved bridging the worlds of technology and the broader population public health thinking. And then, of course, I did all this work in delivery system reform in the House of Medicine. So these three areas, I hope, will increasingly converge and think about health for individuals and communities broadly. And this is, for me, I say sometimes the social determinants of health, but that doesn't necessarily encapsulate it all. It's really about, because medicine is a part of it, but how do we really start to think about the root cause for why the second year in a row people in this country are starting to die sooner than they used to? And you're talking about the most recent data that came out uh, from the CDC about a week and a half ago as we're talking earlier deaths, more deaths from opioids and overdoses specifically. Just getting back to your role for a second, you're talking about your role as both OASH, the Assistant Secretary for Health, as well as the head of, of ANC, the Office of National Coordinator. You did those jobs famously at the same time. The last time you were on this podcast, we talked about that, and I'll, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Looking back, was it the right decision to do both of them at the same time for as long as you did? Could you have given up the job at ONC, perhaps earlier, and slid over to be the Assistant Secretary of Health. Hmm. I still think that it was the right thing to do, and there are a lot of reasons for that, Dan. One of them was um, particular to ONC, well, to both organizations, but particular to ONC. Um, I arrived there in January of 2014 at a time when we were having a budget cliff and uh, a change in our work purpose from grant administration and meaningful uses, the focus to moving back into a world of doing coordination and policy. So we were in the middle of a turnaround. And as a result of that, I'd had the departure of senior staff and was in the middle of recruiting senior staff or promoting folks. And I felt very personally responsible and engaged to make certain that that important work of that office did not get interrupted. So I, I stayed. Plus, you got to remember that, um, well, you, you may not remember, but the, the big draw for me to come to HHS when Kathleen Sebelius recruited me was to, to do delivery system reform, to work with Patrick on setting a strategy. Patrick Conway at yes, CMMI. That's right. And, and, so, and, and weave in uh, ONC is a critical underpinning. If, without the access to the information, we couldn't really go to value-based payment and value-based care models. So it was, all of those pieces were connected for me. And um, so it, it was the only thing I could do, I think is the answer I would tell you. Uh, it, it's what, what had to, to happen. And I think the both offices learned a lot from each other over time. Looking back now, a year later, how is ONC? How, how is OASH? OASH doesn't even have a leader yet. So um, OASH has an acting who was one of my deputies, um, and uh, in fact, the nominee uh, is from New Orleans. It's a, a guy who went to the same high school my husband went to, to give you some sense of how small the world is. You're, you're talking about Brett? Brett Guar. He's, um, in fact, he graduated in the same class as my former boss, Mayor Mitch Landrieu. I hear great things about him, and uh, I have had the chance to talk with him. The team, though, there is uh, terrific and, and carrying forward a, a lot of a lot of the work that that was started. 
I'll call out in particular some folks like the Surgeon General who I think have really stepped in uh, and leaned in hard to, to particularly make sure that the Commission Corps feels a, a core part of what's happening. Um, ONC is, um, uh, I think, doing extremely well, particularly because it's been uh, under some assault, as you can imagine. I, I watch closely some, some of the um, activity that's happening. I'll just maybe start on the, the good, where I feel um, uh, pleased that the foundational work that was done around uh, moving from a uh, EHR kind of meaningful use world to one that was really more about data liquidity is the, still the continued trajectory. So think, you know, APIs, these doorways to the data, but also the opportunity to really move to many uh, use cases of the data, not just about healthcare. Uh, I think that um, they are doing some good work to address the 21st century cures law, which uh, people may or may not realize um, was something was one of the great collaborative achievements of the administration in the Hill, and we had some legislative asks uh, we the administration that that m- were in the bill that modernized the the authorities of the Office of the National Coordinator in important ways that made it more modern. So it wasn't just about a computer, but it was really about data. Let's let's be a little bit more specific, and we we jumped right by this, but you yeah. said that ONC has been somewhat under attack. Are you talking about the budget? impact of, of yeah. proposed cuts? Yeah, I think I think there's some sense that, and, and th- this was the case even when I walked into the office, that the purpose of ONC was about the Meaningful Use Program, and that's absolutely not what the purpose of ONC, when it was created uh, back in the Bush administration, it, it was recognized even then that the federal government as a developer, provider, procurer of health IT needed to have uh, a a coordinator that could work across the federal government and in partnership with the private sector to get a clear understanding of not only standards like, you know, uh, uh, technical standards, but but business standards and what we might call cultural standards. So it's import transcends the Meaningful Use Program. And and a lot of my work when I was there was to get the team off of thinking only about meaningful use on the Hill as well, and to recognize that the world was now about data and the story it told of people and communities. It wasn't about an EHR. Where where should it be going? Where could it be going? Well, you know, we we set the the strategic plan to talk about uh, all of the use cases for the data, healthcare being important because of the obvious... Uh, cost implications and health implications for the country, though there are other use cases for that data. Research and precision medicine was a, a, a really important focus and include and is in 21st century cures. But public health and preparedness, there are other there are other important um, reasons that ONC should be thinking about security, safety, privacy, standards. And I think we, what we really strove to do, and they're continuing to do, is to shape this idea that um, the the data has many uses uh, and and that we need to be there for people. Which kind of brings me to the other regulatory piece and. Uh, I think we learned, uh, we as a country, that uh, that the private sector is not going to solve the data availability issue. Data is not going to be liquid unless it's forced. We uh, Certainly in the early Obama administration, the, the approach was less regulatory on the vendors. And I 
shifted that. I wanted to be more prescriptive about the fact that there had to be open source APIs, an opportunity for data to be shared, not just in a direct mode, but we need to move to this more like data liquid internet like experience, because that's what consumers want. They want their data on their phone in the way that we have it in other sectors, not just consumers, but again, public health and healthcare and research as, as examples of use cases. So while I'm all for deregulation, uh, to reduce burden where it's unnecessary, and we should always be looking at that um, as a country because it's easy to pile on, but it's always harder to take away. Uh, on the other hand, I think there are times when if the private sector has not been able to solve it, that's an important role for government to step in, especially if there's a, a public good to the data. Well, let me let me do my job as a reporter and push you on this. Is this administration too focused on being deregulatory, or is it hitting the right balance of trying to push back on on regulations, but give the market space to operate? My sense from the outside is that they're finding their balance. I used to talk about this a lot when I was there, that that it's like a dial, you know, or uh, I, 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 people on the, <laughs> can't see that I'm using my hands to try to show balance because the arc of regulation is very long, Dan. So when you when you start writing a reg, it's years into the future that it will hit the marketplace, which is why in IT it's so challenging. On the other hand, um, it's, it's so challenging because of the pace of development, and you start you start writing the reg, and by the time it actually comes out, the world has changed. That's exactly right, and so that's, for example, why our work in data standards was sub-regulatory to set the interoperability standards advisory, and that's the way they're doing the trust framework. That that um, on the other hand, I think that there are times when even the suggestion of regulation, the signaling of it, can really encourage the market. And I'm going to step out of ONC and the HHS. Um, uh, CMS sort of world and talk about the FDA, which I think is a great example of how even signaling about uh, th- their their current signaling about places that they want to perhaps push regulation, tobacco, nutrition, compared with places where they want to ease regulation, like in the pre-cert pro- pre-certification program for some of the health IT world, is, is a, I think, a great example of how they're trying to find that right balance. Allow innovation, don't get in the way of the ceiling, but set a floor and try to end the, the guardrails. Shifting away from ONC and just looking a little bit more at public health and social determinants, which is something that you have advocated and, and researched for, I, I want to know what is the best example of social determinants leading to better health cost controls at a time when this is a buzzword and we're really looking for proof that social determinants are changing things for the better? Well, I'm going to go back in history, and I'm going to um, remind you and others that the ma- the biggest impact that we made on the tuberculosis epidemic since you started uh, this conversation thinking about epidemics was uh, related to housing policy and not to drugs. So by doing better spacing in in housing, by getting people out of tenements, basically, and improving uh, air cir- circulation and quality, we made a big difference in a, a major scourge in society. So these ideas about social determinants are not new. This is the ways that public health and this country, frankly, made the, some of the biggest change that it has made in the health of people in this nation, of our well-being. In the current day world, in the current universe, I have to say um, that there are um, mostly the data is associations. So we have a sense from data or we know from data that if people go to bed hungry, they have higher health care costs. We also know that if people 
are are being supported by um, social services like SNAP or food stamps or WIC, feeding children, feeding programs for children, or Meals on Wheels programs, that um, they're they have less healthcare costs. What we're learning right now in today's world is, okay, let's do it as an intervention. Let's not just look at the association, but let's take a population of of individuals, find out if they're going to bed hungry, change that, and then see if that actually reduces not only health care costs, but improves their health outcomes. When we have a better sense of the value proposition of the social determinants of health, when we can say something about it from an actuarial standpoint, my hope then, my expectation then, is we'll stop thinking about it as a nice-to-do a drain on the healthcare system, but we'll recognize that it's actually a way that this country is going to start to make a change in in the way we conceptualize health and the role of healthcare and social services as partners and not of one as the drain on the other. And that we'll um, find a way to reinvest savings, not again only in the healthcare side, but in the whole fabric of what affects people's health outcomes. I think that, and those are those are not fluffy white hat questions. Those are business questions. That's how do we um, understand the true cost of an intervention to keep grandma from going to bed hungry, and what, how does that accrue to the bottom line, and then and where do those savings happen? I think it's an amazing opportunity for innovation. Social services in this country is more of a cottage industry than healthcare has been for a long time, and it is it is in this day and age in 2018 not in a position to serve people in the way that it needs to. And I think we're seeing that disconnect, Dan. This gets to something that I've, I've looked into in reporting on hospitals in big cities where the hospital is now maybe the biggest employer, is not-for-profit, tax-exempt, has some responsibility to the community. But asking the leaders of the hospital, Toby Cosgrove, then the CEO of Cleveland Clinic was on this podcast. I, I pushed him on this. What is the clinic's responsibility in terms of housing, education, food, and at some point, he said it wasn't the hospital uh, to be responsible for those things. And then in Yale, New Haven, another poor community, the leader there, Myrna Bergstrom, the, the CEO of the hospital, said we're focused on food insecurity, which is great. But then talking to some of the folks who work in food insecurity, it sounds like the system is not set up for Yale, New Haven, perhaps to refer all the patients who need help. Several key points. Let me let me start with um, the healthcare systems responsibility in addressing the social determinants. Is, is this your personal opinion or Karen DeSalvo, the former assistant secretary for health who thought about all of these responsibilities? They're the same person. So, um, Dan, going back in time, um, medicine and public health and social services were sort of one field. And, and they began, particularly public health and medicine, began to divide professionally and economically over time. I think what we're experiencing in the country right now is that that's not really working. <laughs> and that leaving behind if, um, concepts about population health and systematic change like flush toilets or, you know, mosquito control, or, uh, and in, in today's world, uh, economic opportunity as a determinant of health is uh, affecting well-being of communities in the bottom line. It's 
actually leading to mortality. And this, these data from the CDC where we're having a decline in life expectancy, and it's not just a little decline. If you compare us to our peers internationally, you'll see that the lines are diverging in ways that, that make me think it's more than just a couple of data points. And it's brought out in the work of, of Angus Deaton, um, and the the and, and Anne Case's Anne wife. Case, that's exactly right. Yeah. Two brilliant uh, economists who have shown us that people in America today are dying of social causes. No one sector can do that by itself. Not a healthcare system. Not uh, the business sector. Not political leaders. Not public health. Not social services. It's going to require what we called when I was in government public health 3.0. It's a uh, everyone working together to create the conditions in which we can be healthy. We have to start somewhere, and very often that means the high-need, high-cost individuals in our community who um, we can help by getting them connected with services. But to your point, that can't end there because many of these social services, housing, food, transportation, are mom-and-pop, cottage industry, grant-funded, live in check-to-check, not, don't have an IT infrastructure. So what we're, what we're seeing in the field is that the push to reduce cost by um, uh, addressing not just medical but uh, also social determinants of health is causing some medicalization of that which will be okay as long as we take the best of medicine. Um, on the other hand, I think there's some interest in, again, creating a, a strengthening of that sector of social services and public health so it can be a partner and not a drain, because I don't believe it's a drain. But that that's a, 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 a shift in mindset for this country about um, whether we're going to have um, a uh, – whether we're going to think about food security and transportation as something that everybody – uh, not only needs, but ought to have, and, and even if you have just a value proposition in mind, it makes it, it affects it affects the bottom line. And last point in this is that it is hard to see when you're in the middle of your largesse, when you live with privilege and you have enough food and don't have to worry about transportation. But even within a healthcare system, what some CEOs and boards are learning is they don't have to go very far beyond their own walls. They have employees who struggle with um, with need, and that they can affect they can affect their own healthcare costs just from their own employees by beginning to understand in systematic ways and systematically addressing social determinants, and then they can they can keep moving upstream from there. Last question, since I have you, the news that you are a professor again. At Dell Medical School, one of the interesting new medical schools came across the wire. I think we had it in Politico Pulse. Can you just tell me and, and tell the listeners how Dell Medical School is deliberately trying to chart a different path than, say, more traditional medical schools? Well, Dan, um, I grew up in Austin, and I grew up in a poor neighborhood there. And uh, so it's really personal to me to think about having the opportunity for a new medical school that is charged by the taxpayers to address the health of the community and to do that in a way that's not just about better medical care, but is really about addressing all the determinants of health and thinking about changing the context in the community, places, the place where I grew up. So I think the mentality, the philosophy, the bond with the public in, in, in Austin, plus the brilliant people who have converged and are treating this like everything that we have assumed about medicine we shouldn't assume as we move forward that we we can create a value proposition for health and not just for healthcare and train 
a generation of leaders who can lead in that space is really exciting. So I'm looking forward to that work. I need to figure out how to wrangle an invitation to go to Austin and see the Dell Medical School for myself. But until then, thank you for making time to catch up. Karen DeSalvo speaking for herself. Thank you so much. It was really wonderful to see you again. Hey, it's Dan Diamond. And normally we'd have a reporter news roundtable here, but as we record this on Friday afternoon and we held off as long as we could, the news is very much in flux about whether there will be a government shutdown or not. So instead, I'm going to give you a quick rundown of some of the big healthcare stories this week that got nudged to the side by the shutdown focus. And by the time you're listening to this, perhaps the shutdown will have happened. And if you work in government, you'll have plenty of time to catch up on these stories. Alternately, maybe lawmakers will have struck a deal to keep the government open, meaning that shutdown stories may have been just temporarily pushed to the side. First, I I thought it could be interesting to use this time to give you a peek into the newsroom and how Politico covers a big story like this. One of my colleagues tweeted a screenshot of Politico.com's front page on Friday afternoon, and essentially all of the visible stories, something like 20 headlines, were all about the shutdown. And that makes perfect sense. It's the kind of story that Politico is built to cover, between the battle on the Hill and how congressional leaders are negotiating, over at the White House, how Trump is weighing in, and then all the implications for the agencies. For example, on the health team, we've been running around to lock down what happens to priorities like public health emergencies and other safety issues that could lapse if the government shuts down. You'll see that coverage on Politico.com's homepage. But that kind of flood-the-zone coverage also means that other stories can get easily crowded out, whether on our homepage or, or by readers, which can be unfortunate, though predictable. That's why I'm going to catch you up on three stories, which you can all find in the show notes. First, my colleagues Jen Habercorn and Brianna Ailey reported on the financial conflicts facing CDC director Brenda Fitzgerald. There have been some real questions about why Fitzgerald, the CDC head, has been so quiet. She's been sending deputies to testify in front of Congress. She's made very few public remarks. And in a great scoop, Jen and Brianna got to the key reason Fitzgerald has at least several hundred thousand dollars in investments that present possible conflicts of interest on things she has to deal with, including potentially the opioid crisis. Still not totally transparent. It's a nuanced story. And it sparked pressure from lawmakers who want Fitzgerald to divest. She's privately assuring them that she will. Fitzgerald, you may remember, is the former Georgia health commissioner who is close allies with former HHS Secretary Tom Price. She took over at CDC last summer. It's also interesting to think about this story in a broader context. In previous administrations, financial conflicts on this scale would have been a significant deal and a probable non-starter for administration appointees. In this administration, it's been months since Fitzgerald took her seat, and this really hasn't been publicly scrutinized. A second story, also from Brianna and Sarah Carlin-Smith, was a big scoop about the White House's plan to essentially gut the Office of National Drug Control Policy, the drug czar's office, cutting funding by 95%. Now, there are complaints in the healthcare world that the office is unnecessary or duplicative. 
Obviously, things have gotten worse with the opioid crisis on the office's watch, but still, the timing is notable, given that the nation is dealing with an opioid crisis and that this White House has not done very much in the way of making strides to fight the opioid crisis, expand resources. So to pull back stands out. And if that sounds familiar, it's because this is a rerun of a scoop that Politico had last year, basically down to the level of funding cuts. There was a big outcry on Capitol Hill in 2017 when the Trump administration tried to similarly gut the office. It saved the office last year. It remains to be seen if that can and will happen again. And third, Jen and I scooped that HHS is moving forward with new conscience protections. As of this week, there's a new office in HHS's Civil Rights Division specifically devoted to protecting religious liberty. There was a new rule that came out from HHS broadening protections for workers with moral religious objections to procedures like uh, providing abortions, potentially delivering care to transgender patients who want to transition. Now, some of this is symbolic. It's also laying the groundwork for more meaningful changes down the line that religious leaders at HHS do want. And this is a big win for religious leaders at HHS, as well as anti-abortion activists, many of whom came to D.C. this week for a major anti-abortion rally called March for Life. And one more note about this story. The New York Times wrote about it on Thursday. The Washington Post covered it Wednesday. But political readers found out on Tuesday, a good reader for all of you Pulse Check listeners to be reading our website too. And there is much more to come on the conscience and abortion issues raised by that reporting this week. And that is all for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Karen DeSalvo for chatting in San Francisco and producers Bridget Mulcahy and Michaela Rodriguez for editing the podcast. You can find me at ddiamond at politico.com. You can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. And you can find a new episode in your podcast player next week.